0: It is good to be here with you this morning, but to be honest, it is also uh, pretty bittersweet. Uh, I know uh, Resurrection Sunday is one of uh, the biggest uh, days of the year for us as Christians. It is a, a time where we love to to gather together to worship our risen Savior, and yeah, it was a little bit weird uh, preparing for this week just knowing that, again, I wouldn't get to see any of your faces. And I want you all to know that you have been heavy upon my heart and just constantly in my prayers these last few weeks as I have longed to see you all. And even just reflecting upon past years of, of celebrating uh, this day uh, together, I uh, got a little sad of even not being able to to hear your response when I say that He is risen. Uh, and I long to be able to, to hear you say He is risen indeed, but uh, that will be all the sweeter next year when we are together. Uh, and uh, I look forward to the day when we are just able to have a our, our normal church services once again. But uh, we are thankful that we are able to uh, communicate with you all in this way, that we are able to gather together virtually uh, and study God's Word, and look to the cross, and look to the empty... ...on television screens, and computer screens, and smartphones, and, and mobile devices. In 2019, they they were counted that there were 532 scripted television programs uh, on television. And that number does not include reality television shows on uh, streaming services and network television and cable. And in 2010, there were just over 200 of those same scripted shows. So there was a a tremendous amount to uh, create that much content, 500 television shows. And I've always said that, that some network out there so just make a television show and, and and show us the Bible accurately. I know a lot of them have done that, but uh, inaccurately so. I said, why don't they just portray Scripture as it is given to us? If you want drama, well, there is drama in the Bible. If you want... Uh, action and excitement, you need to look no further than the greatest story ever told that you have, hopefully, there with you in your lap, and that we are opening up and studying this morning. In and, and both the, the Old and the New Testament, there is drama aplenty, and you could look at the, the lives of, of Abraham and, and Jacob and Joseph, and then the life of, of David would make a, a tremendous soap opera, right? There's murder and intrigue and all of these things. Uh, But then there's also the New Testament, which is just as exciting, if not even more so, where you have the lives of of Peter and Paul and John Mark and Luke and and so many things beyond uh, the greatest life that was ever lived in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this morning, I want to Look at a little bit of uh, Paul's relationship with the Corinthian church. This is this would have been one of those really interesting unfolding dramas to, to watch uh, in a television series. And uh, we're going to be looking at Second Corinthians today. And I want to look briefly, a little bit of background, at Paul's interactions and his relationship with claimed the gospel there actually not first corinthians uh, it's It's a it's chapter five verses nine to thirteen, and Paul uh, mentions that he had written to them previously, and then the Corinthians wrote a response to Paul's initial letter, that lost letter, uh, and had some some gentlemen carry that to paul and then the letter that we know as First Corinthians is Paul's response to their letter. And uh, they they wrote to Paul and they had several things that they were asking him about. And if you look at the letter to 1 Corinthians, Paul is answering questions that they had regarding the resurrection and regarding uh, meat sacrifice to idols and, and all of these different things, spiritual gifts. But he also addressed uh, the spiritual issues in the church that the men who carried the letter told him about. And so 1 uh, Corinthians is, is a hard letter. It's a confrontational letter uh, where he confronts the factions that were forming in the church. And he, he, Paul wrote that letter. Uh, that we know is 1 Corinthians, but it's actually the second letter that he wrote to them. Now, he wrote that in uh, Ephesus uh, and during his extended ministry there in Ephesus, which is recorded in Acts chapter 19. Uh, and then while he was there in Ephesus, Paul took a, a short journey at some point during his two-year ministry in Ephesus. He He hopped across the Aegean Sea and went over to Corinth and had a visit with them. And that visit did not go well. And there were there were false teachers creeping into the church and and leading that church astray. And Paul went over there to to have a showdown, to have a confrontation with them, and it didn't go well. So then Paul wrote a third letter to the Corinthians, which is known as the severe letter. Uh, and again, this is mentioned in Second Corinthians chapter two, uh, where Paul is saying, "Hey, I, I had to write to you severely, and that and that grieved me." To have to do that. And then after that third letter, Paul wrote what we know and what we have in our hands today as 2 Corinthians. Uh, and this was written when he was uh, on another missionary journey in Macedonia. And after he wrote this letter, this second, or early the fourth letter to the Corinthians, but we know it as 2 Corinthians, he he visited them one more time in Acts chapter 20. And that's the, the final recorded visit that we have between Paul and the Corinthian church. And, and the reason I bring all of this up is because Corinth was undoubtedly Paul's most difficult church plant. Of all the churches that he started, Cor- Corinth was the most difficult. And, and Yet what we see when we read 2 Corinthians is that this is the most pastoral letter that Paul wrote. That even though there were people who opposed him and were hostile to him uh, there, he wrote w- with love and with patience. And what we're going to, to see as we, we look at this letter today, now chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, Consist of Paul's normal greeting that he starts each of his letters uh, with, or most of his letters with, of saying, uh, about his, uh, speaking of his own authority and then who he's writing to and he says grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But then Paul moves into this doxology that is intended to, to comfort and, and bring, I guess, healing to the, to the relationship that he has with the Corinthians and to comfort them in their affliction. This is a, a doxology, but it is intended to, to steer the hearts and minds of the Corinthians to God. And if you look with me at Second Corinthians chapter one, beginning in verse three, Paul says Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, It is for your comfort and salvation, and if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same suffering that we suffer. For hope, or our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. And and if you just look at the, the way Paul speaks there, Father of mercies, God of all comfort. You can see just the the pastoral heart that that Paul has for these Corinthians, for this really difficult for on, to, to pay it forward, so to speak. And we are indeed living in a unique time when we as Christians must draw upon the hope that we have in the gospel, the hope that we have in God through our Lord Jesus Christ and through his gospel. And that gospel message is simple. It's that gospel message that brings us together virtually today. Uh, and that gospel message is is very simple. It's namely that Jesus Christ lived and died for Sinners. That he paid the penalty for our sins, so that we could be rescued, reconciled, and redeemed, and now in right relationship with God the Father, and but we have to look to Christ in Faith and if you haven 't done that this morning and, and you 're here and you 're you 're watching this with us, we are so glad that you are here. but I would uh, invite you to look to Jesus in faith to no longer rely upon yourself but but trust in him, and we 're going to to show you his worthiness of your face this morning and so this is a this is a unique time when we, as Christians must draw upon the hope that we have in Christ, but this is also a, a unique time for the world around us because the world around us is searching for hope. They are grasping and clinging, searching desperately for, for something that can sustain them and make give them stability in their life. But all that they are grasping and, and scraping for, the things of this world that they are turning to for hope, they are ultimately unable to save them. Now, Netflix and, and other entertainments can can push troubles from your mind, right? It can kind of numb things, make things disappear, and then the government might send you a, a one-time check that, that's forthcoming, but neither of those can deliver a hope that lasts even in this life, or nor can they save you from death. And the world might cling to these things and look to them for hope, but it's like, clinging to the titanic as it goes down and thinking okay everything's going to be great i have the titanic look at this big ship that i'm able to cling to you're like well that's not going to end well it's going for you well for you right now but but the the ultimate destination it's not going to be good and so we have a tremendous opportunity during this coronavirus to to proclaim the gospel to point people to the god of all comfort to who is able to, to comfort in any affliction, anyone who turns to Him in faith? But you might say, "I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to give hope and comfort to others." I would say, "You, you absolutely can, and if you if you understand and believe the gospel, if you understand what Jesus has done for you, then you can go and and share that with others. If your life has been changed by Christ." You can just go and talk with others about how your life has been changed. If you have been comforted in your affliction, you can just go and speak to others about how you have been comforted by God in your trials and in your suffering. And that is exactly what the Apostle Paul does here with the Corinthians. In this deeply pastoral letter, Paul shares his heart and from his own experiences of how the Lord has worked in his life. Again, we, we read through the, the first seven verses of this letter, but then in the verses that we're going to, to look at in verses 8 through 10 this morning, Paul is going to, to seek to give them words of additional comfort and hope. And as he seeks to comfort them in their afflictions, he speaks about his own experiences of suffering and despair and how God used those afflictions to instruct his heart. And the lessons that Paul learned from his afflictions are going to be just as applicable to you and I today. But granted, our afflictions are different than his afflictions. And uh, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, so just a little bit later in this very same letter, Paul is going to list out the afflictions that he endured during his ministry. In verse uh, 24 in chapter 11, he says, "...five times I received..." in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Those are pretty serious afflictions, and we are not going through afflictions to that degree right now. But, But there are harsh realities that are coming to bear upon our lives right now, and there's a very real sense that it could get worse in the near future. We must be ready for that. So, what is it that we can learn from our afflictions? Well, what we're going to see in verses eight through ten are three lessons regarding how our afflictions instruct us. But as we as we study this this morning, I want you to understand something. This message, what we're going to read here, is not a "whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger" message. Okay. This is not just a, oh, it'll make you tougher. This is a God's Word teaches us how to understand all of life message. This is God's Word informing us how to understand our afflictions and how to make sense of what we have suffered or are currently suffering or what we will suffer in the future so that we begin to see and grasp how God is working in and through our afflictions to bring glory to himself and to bring good, yes, good into our lives. And so we're going to look at these three lessons and the first lesson is going to be found in verse 8 That our afflictions can cause us to despair of our life. Our afflictions can cause us to despair of our life. And Paul says this, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. So Paul is speaking here, pointing back to an experience that he has already had. And it's an experience that the Corinthians were probably aware of. And what he's saying here is, I want you to know more about this. I don't want you to be uh, unaware. I want you to, to fill you in on some additional details. And even though Paul mentions this affliction, we are not quite sure What exactly he is referring to? We have a a long list of options. As I read in in Second Corinthians chapter 11, Uh, it it could be something that he experienced uh, in the city of Ephesus, where he is writing, uh, or he where he was for a time in writing First Corinthians. Uh, and Ephesus is the the capital city in Asia, and that's what uh, which is in modern day Turkey. And he says, "Hey, you are aware of the affliction that we experienced in Asia? So maybe it's something that took place when he was there in Ephesus, but we're not exactly sure. But what we do know is this this word that he uses for affliction. It's the same Greek word that we encountered a couple of weeks ago when we looked at Romans chapter twelve and it speaks of any outward circumstance uh that brings difficulty any outward trial that we have to face in life and that includes persecution imprisonment or plague pestilence among other things uh and all of the the myriad of things that Paul listed uh, as we read and it could have been any one of those things that that brought uh Paul to despair but Paul doesn't go into detail about that affliction. Again, he doesn't go into detail because really what the affliction was is not his point. The point of what Paul is saying in this verse is, is really found at the second part of the verse where he says, For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself see paul 's point is not the affliction, but the result, the impact of the affliction upon Paul and his companions. It led them to despair it led them to a complete psychological loss that they were uh, they didn 't know what to do with themselves psychologically speaking, meaning in their heart and in their soul, not modern day psychology but Within them, they didn't know what to do. They were so burdened and weighed down to an extreme degree that Paul uses two little phrases here uh, to, to express how intense it was. Uh, he says, utterly, which is you know in the ESV, but that's literally too excess or literally too hyperbole. Paul says, this was so great that it was beyond our strength that their affliction was so great. And, and remember, this is the Apostle Paul speaking. He says, this affliction was so great that we despaired of life itself. So we have to, to realize how much this impacted Paul. And Paul was still just a man. Uh, I know sometimes pastors treat him like a superhero. Uh, but But he was still just a man like we are still prone to, to fear and, and feelings of despair. And feelings of despair in the middle of affliction are a reality in life. And And many of you might be thinking, well, well thanks, Pastor Obvious. I, I, I realize that that, that is a, a normal part of life. We already know that. Tell me something that I don't know. But... But but this truth is something that we we should not speed past. It's something that we we need to slow down and and pause and be here for a minute or two uh, and realize that despair uh, is not something to to scoff at. It's something that many people uh, experience. Some of the greatest uh, Christian saints in church history have been deeply plagued by depression and despair and Charles Spurgeon one of my favorite preachers and the the greatest preacher of the 19th century battled against depression for most of his ministry Uh, an artist once tried to, to paint a portrait of Spurgeon and after much frustration the artist said I can't paint you your face is different every day you are never the same And in Spurgeon's personal correspondence, his his letters contain numerous references to his sinking spirits, and he often called himself a prisoner, and he often wept without really knowing why. And we would do well to keep in mind this quote from Spurgeon. The mind can descend far lower than the body, for there are bottomless pits. And that's what... That's what Paul was saying he was with his companions, that they had lost hope. They were utterly in despair, even of their own life. And it is often easier to endure physical pain than to endure despair in our heart and in our mind. Proverbs 15:13 says, "A glad heart makes a cheerful face, but by sorrow of the heart, the spirit is crushed. Again, many of you have experienced that, and many of you have seen others in that same place. And if the Apostle Paul and, and Charles Spurgeon can experience despair and depression, then we need to realize that we can experience the exact same thing. We don't need to to make light of suffering and and despair that we may be experiencing or that what we are seeing others experience around us and we we need to be understanding and compassionate during this time with those who, who might be in despair whether they are believers or unbelievers and i was talking with uh one of the, some of the guys in my growth group a couple of weeks ago, and, and one of the, the men was saying he, he was struggling uh, to be both sympathetic to his wife, because he's kind of more just just a facts guy, uh, and he's saying, I'm, I'm struggling to, to sympathize with her concerns. He's like, we just need to kind of just plow through this pandemic. And so we were talking about that. So he was saying, hey, pray for me. I need to be sympathetic. But I also, I'm trying to balance, I want to be a source of stability. I want to be sympathetic, but I also want to be a rock, he said. And uh, so the, the other guys quickly gave a, a hearty amen to that. That's an easy thing for us guys to to struggle with. Uh, just get over it. Come on, just rub some dirt on it. And And we gave a hearty amen. And then we began to pray, okay, Lord, help us to be compassionate rocks. Lord, Lord, help us to be sources of stability, but also sympathetic to the, the suffering and the, the despair of others. And, and help us to, to point them to Christ. And, and we need to, to understand that our afflictions can cause us to despair, even of our life. And this is in the realm of possibilities, but it doesn't have to be that way. We need to understand that it, it, it's possible and, and likely that it may happen depending upon our afflictions. But it does not have to lead to despair. And, and in this first lesson, we see that our, our afflictions may lead us to despair. But even if that happens, it doesn't mean that God can't use that despair. It doesn't mean that all things are, are over and done with. That is, that is not the only lesson just merely leads to the second lesson that we're going to see regarding our affliction, which is in verse 9, that our afflictions can convince us to relocate our trust. Paul says this, Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. You know, what we see the apostle Paul doing here is, is again bridging from his, his past suffering to what he has learned from it. Uh, and in that first statement that he gives, that indeed we felt that we had received the sentence of death. It's, it's also unclear what Paul is referring to here. It could be some uh, occasion when a, a civil magistrate or ruler gave a death sentence to Paul and his companions, and said, "All right, you're going to die." And this may not have been recorded in the book of Acts. There are a lot of things that were, were took place that were not recorded. But I think more it is more likely that Paul is saying that he had accepted or he had resigned himself to dying for Jesus. That he began to see that it was inevitable that he would be martyred for his faith, that he would be martyred for proclaiming the gospel. Acts chapter 20. So just a little bit after these letters would have been written and speaking to the ephesian elders paul says this acts chapter 20 verse 24 he says but i do not account my life of any value or as precious to myself if only i may finish my course and the ministry that was that i received from the lord jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of god paul's saying hey my focus is not on my own safety my focus is now on fulfilling what Jesus has for me. And that may lead to, to martyrdom. That may lead to death. And he says, I don't value my life as anything that is precious. But he's focused solely upon pursuing and serving Jesus. And, and here in 2 Corinthians, we are seeing how the Lord brought him to that point of being willing to be martyred. That, that wasn't an overnight thing. That, that was a uh, a long transformation in the life of the Apostle Paul uh, as the Lord brought him low and humbled him through a variety of circumstances. And all of this is it's made even more clear that this is part of the process of God working in Paul's life. And the, the second statement in verse 9 says, "...but that was to make us rely not on ourselves but on God who raises the dead. And The, the word that ESV translates as rely, is really a, a verb that means uh, to put confidence in something, that you are, are so convinced uh, regarding something that you put your trust and your confidence in that. And as the Apostle Paul looks back on that affliction, whatever it may be, and he sees the resulting despair. He sees the lesson that he learned and how the, the Lord used that despair to get his attention. That God used that despair to relocate his hope. That, that even the Apostle Paul needed to, to transition his hope from being upon himself, his own strength, his own wisdom, his own works to being fully reliant upon God. And the Apostle Paul needed to learn this lesson even after many years as an apostle, a missionary, a pastor, a church planter, you name it. After many years of serving the Lord, the Apostle Paul still needed to learn this. And it is times of of great affliction, times of desperation that can be most used by God to get our attention to show us uh where our hope is and where it needs to be. There's a an amazing story in church history uh, of a of a Frankish king named Clovis who in the year 493 married another uh or married a princess from Burgundia, and her name was Clotilda, which is a very cool name, and uh, I'll write that down maybe for future use. Uh, and uh, Clotilda was a, a Christian, and she sought for years to share the gospel with her husband and to reason with him, to persuade him, to, to abandon his worship of the Germanic idols and to worship the one true God. Well, then, in in 496, Clovis was in a, a serious military battle against another Germanic tribe, and in his desperation, Clovis prayed to the Lord. Who had, he had heard so much about this God, this Jesus, from his wife, that he finally turned to him, and this is the the prayer that has been re- recorded by Clovis. This was his prayer. He says, "Oh Jesus Christ." Clotilda holds that you are the son of the living God. That you graciously pour out assistance on people in trouble and victory comes to people who put their trust in you. In faith I cry for your glorious aid. If you will hand me victory over those who attack me and I get proof of the miracles tasted by those committed to your name, then I will exercise faith in you and submit to baptism. I have cried to my own gods to help me, but it is painfully obvious they are not going to help me. So I cannot credit them with any power. They do not intervene to rescue people who trust in them. So now, so I now cry out to you. I long to believe in you, especially that I may escape my foes. So that Germanic king had come to the end of himself. He says, he's no longer going to trust in these idols. He says, I fully realize that they are not coming to help me. And he began to, to place his trust in Christ and Christ alone. And ultimately, his prayer was answered. His life was delivered. And he became one of the most influential Christian kings in the early centuries of the church. And again, that is that is exactly what our afflictions are able to do for us, what they are able to teach us. The lesson that they bring is that we need to relocate our hope, our trust, whom we are relying upon. We need to remove it from being a reliance upon self to being a reliance upon Christ. And And in, in speaking about this, passage, John Calvin wrote this that was just so helpful and so convicting. says, there are accordingly two things to be observed here. In the first place, that fleshly confidence with which we are puffed up is so obstinate that it cannot be overthrown in any other way than by our falling into utter despair. Think about that. The Apostle Paul is learning and growing so much, serving the Lord. But God said, Paul, for you to learn this lesson, I have to take you to the depths of despair. That's what John Calvin is noting here. And he continues and says, For as the flesh is proud, it does not willingly give way and never ceases to be insolent until it has been constrained. Nor are we brought to true submission until we have been brought down by the mighty hand of God. And then Calvin continues. He says, Secondly, it is to be observed that the saints themselves have some remains of this disease adhering to them. We still have this tendency to rely upon ourselves. Calvin continues. And that for this reason, they, speaking of the saints, speaking of Christians, they are often reduced to an extremity. That stripped of all self-confidence, they may learn humility. Nay, more, that this malady is so deeply rooted in the minds of men that even the most advanced are not thoroughly purged from it until God sets death before their eyes. And hence we may infer how displeasing... To God, confidence in ourselves must be when for the purpose of correcting it, it is necessary that we should be condemned to death. What a lesson our afflictions teach us, right? That we need to relocate our hope. And sometimes we can only be convinced of that when we are in that pit of despair. That bottomless pit that Charles Spurgeon spoke of. And again, so as we look at our, our current circumstances, as we look at the coronavirus, and again, a lot of people are asking, well, what is God doing in the coronavirus? I think this is a part of it. Getting our attention and saying, look, you need to relocate your trust. Don't put any trust in yourself, in your savings, in your stock market, in your home, in your job. Put all of your trust in Jesus. That is what we see. And these first two lessons teach us quite a bit, don't they? That our afflictions can cause us to despair of our life. But if that happens, God is also able to use those afflictions to teach us to relocate our trust. And our trust must not be placed in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Did you catch that last little bit of verse 9? It's very significant, and it's going to lead into the third and final lesson in verse 10, that our afflictions are overcome by the hope of the resurrection. Read with me verse 10. Paul says, He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. And all of that is a description of the God who raises the dead that is what Paul is speaking of here. He is describing his faith and his trust in the God who resurrects, the God who was able to give life beyond the grave. And Paul's present hope at this point in time was based upon his past deliverance. We see that at the beginning of verse 10. He delivered us from such such a deadly peril. And again, he's pointing back to whatever that affliction unnamed though it is, whatever it was, Paul is saying, God delivered us from that, as bad as it was. And because God delivered us from that, I we are convinced that he will deliver us. So Paul switches from the past to the future. He will deliver us in the future. And then Paul's resolution from all that he has learned is that on him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. And Paul is not merely speaking of earthly deliverance here. He's not just saying, hey, Paul, or God rescued me from danger at once in the past, and God will God'll, God'll rescue, me, rescue me from any earthly danger that I face in the future. That, that is not Paul's point here. And how do I know that's not his point? Well, again, uh, Paul has said, that he is ready to to die. Paul ha- has explained that he has understood that his ministry is going to end in martyrdom. Now he understands that if he's following Jesus, he's going to suffer just like Jesus did. And if the the feet of Jesus led him to the cross, Paul is prepared to follow this in his footsteps even to that point. In Acts twenty one verse thirteen. Paul says to a group of people who are pleading with him not to go to Jerusalem, because Paul is saying, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I may die there. And so this group of Christians are are pleading with him. And Paul says this, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Again, Paul understood that he was going to be martyred. So Paul is not speaking here of deliverance of earthly uh, afflictions paul is speaking here of heavenly resurrection that is paul's source of of hope in the middle of all of this he is looking forward to the future he is looking forward to what the god who raises the dead is going to do and do you know what the god who raises the dead is going to do in the future He's going to raise the dead. That—that That is Paul's point here. The resurrection, the future resurrection is the key to Paul's hope. And, and looking at that, he says, because that in the future is set, I'm firmly established. that That's not going anywhere. So then that frees Paul up not to be concerned with setting that in order. Well, how do I get right with God? How do I uh, make sure I'm reconciled and, and redeemed and... Uh, how do I get all of that in order? Paul's not worried about that now because that is set and secure. He's able to to focus upon living the here and now, not for himself but for Jesus. It's kind of in, in in the same way as somebody having a a future retirement that is secure, right? If you are if you have money set aside for the future then you don't have to to work and labor now you you can focus upon doing what you want to do uh, and again that that same aspect of uh Paul saying hey my future is secure so i can focus upon just serving the Lord and and looking to him but if you're unsure about your future if you're not sure your retirement is secure which these days you may very well be thinking that you will be anxious. You will be focused upon how do I make arrangements for the future and it, and it changes the way that you live in the present. But, but we have to understand that, that our future is secure, far more secure than any earthly retirement plan. And so we now can live, just like the Apostle Paul did, in the present not for ourselves, but for Christ. We can live for Him. Paul relocated his trust to be a fully upon God rather than on himself or anything else. And that changed the way Paul viewed his afflictions. Romans chapter 8, verse 18, Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Can think of all of the afflictions that Paul listed out that we read earlier. And Paul said, ah, that's nothing. The glory waiting for me in heaven is infinitely better. And that's what I'm looking to. And in the same way, if we if we focus upon our future resurrection, then we would be far less worried about the status of our day-to-day life here. If, if you... Turn over just a couple pages with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You see what this looks like, even in the Apostle Paul's life. It says, For we know, in verse 1, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, speaking of our body, we have a building from God. All right? Which one's better, a tent or a building? So that's the, Paul's point. Hey, I have this tent, and if it, if it gets destroyed, I, I go to a glorified body in heaven. A house made not with hands, eternal in the heavens. Verse 2, For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed, by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. And so we are always of good courage. So think think about that. Again, that's a lesson that Paul learned, and we're we're reading about that in chapter 1. On the one hand, Paul is saying we're always of good courage, but he also spoke of despairing of life. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, meaning that we are here on earth, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord, meaning with Him in heaven. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. When when our future is settled, that, that changes the way that we live now. And Paul says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or bad. It's not speaking of believers being judged for our sin but being evaluated for rewards for our service and we focus on that if we are trusting in the Lord rather than relying upon ourselves. And, and and here's why we, we we look at this today on a resurrection Sunday that that Paul's hope of resurrection is our hope of future resurrection Paul's hope of being raised from the dead, our hope of being raised from the dead, is firmly rooted and established upon Jesus' resurrection from the dead. That he rose from the grave on the third day, proves, demonstrates everything that we talked about on Friday night, as we looked at the cross. And and I can say, if, if Jesus goes to the cross and there is no resurrection then we have no hope. If there is no empty tomb on Sunday morning, then it doesn't matter what happened on Friday night. But Sunday morning proves, Sunday morning shows, the empty tomb demonstrates that everything that took place on Friday was accepted by God the Father that Jesus was slain on our behalf, that he paid the penalty for our sins, that that at the cross our guilt was removed, the wrath of God is satisfied, that we are reconciled to God, that, that we have peace now with our Lord, with our God, that Satan, sin, and death are overcome. All of those things are true because Jesus rose from the dead. Because he was victorious. Back in in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, speaking about the resurrection, Paul says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only... We are, of all people, most to be pitied. And, and we can give a hearty amen to that. Have to, if the resurrection is a, a, a false story, then yeah, we are to be pitied. We have believed a lie. I love what uh, Pastor Tom Pennington said. He says, either the tomb is empty or the gospel is empty. and That, that seems to be Paul's point there in First Corinthians 15, but but this is what Paul says immediately after that. He says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And again, Christ is the beginning of that that new spiritual harvest of the new man, a new people created by Christ's sacrifice for God the Father. And indeed... This morning we 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 look to and we celebrate the fact that that tomb was empty. We look to and, and celebrate the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. But that's again what we do every single Sunday. That's why we gather on the first day of the week to celebrate and remember that Jesus rose from the dead. And not only is Jesus risen, but He has promised to raise us one day in the future. And the promise of that future resurrection, that is what will overcome despair and depression, anxiety and fear in this life. That will be the only thing that will save us from our current afflictions is looking to and being uh, assured of our future hope, our future resurrection, our future eternal life in the presence with God. So we don't need to fear economic hardships, we don't need to to fear disease, we don't need to fear death. Because God has overcome all of those things through the sacrifice of his son on the cross. And all of that is exactly according to the plan of God. So what do we do with all of this, right? What do we do with these three lessons to be learned from our afflictions? That our afflictions can cause us to despair of life, that our afflictions can convince us to relocate our hope, And that our afflictions are overcome by the hope of the resurrection. Well, we can and indeed we must look to the resurrection of Christ and understand its implications for us today as followers of Jesus. In the middle of our afflictions, we can be comforted if our afflictions show us that we need to relocate our hope. And our hope in our future Looking to the God who raises the dead is most assured. And then, what else are we to do with this? Well, we are to to pass that along. We are to give hope to others. And and we can do that even as the Apostle Paul did that. How does he do that here? He just says, Corinthians, look with me at this past experience that I had in my life. And now I want to tell you how the Lord used that for good in my life. And we can do the exact same thing. Even as I said earlier, we can speak to others about how Christ has changed us. We can speak to others about Christ has given us hope and comforted us. And so we can share our story, but our story should lead to His story. It should lead to the gospel. It should lead to Jesus coming to earth, living and dying and rising again on behalf of sinners. And now we need to look to Him in faith. And if we do that, God is able to comfort us in any and every affliction. Our afflictions... Serve to reorient our hearts and our minds to look to Christ and to the hope of a future resurrection with Him. And, and my prayer for us is that the same words that Paul spoke later in 2 Corinthians, if you have your Bibles, turn with me there. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. This is, this is what must take place in our hearts and minds. And again, this is what takes place every single Resurrection Sunday and indeed every single Sunday, that we take our eyes off of the, the physical earthly world around us and we set our hearts, minds, affections, and attitudes upon Christ. Verse 16 in chapter 4 says, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. but the things that are unseen are eternal. And may we turn to those eternal things right now.